Um, last week, I did my very best to try to make the legal case from the Old Testament law that Jesus and his apprentices' decision to eat grain on the Sabbath was actually good and right, which is the opposite perspective from the one that Jesus' opponents, the Pharisees, demonstrated to him in the passage. Because Jesus dealt with the Sabbath directly and kind of approached it head on, it's going to continue to be a theme. When we get to Mark chapter 3 next week, Jesus does a miracle again on the Sabbath and gets picked on by the Pharisees again for doing something on the Sabbath. Um, It just felt appropriate to me for us to take a minute and talk about what Sabbath actually is for New Testament believers in Jesus Christ. Obviously, last week, if you were here, you heard a somewhat in-depth view of Sabbath law from the Old Testament, which was still kind of the world that Jesus was living in. The New Covenant doesn't come about until he dies on the cross, so we get why people had questions about it in his day and age. But for you and I, we definitely don't live in that era. And so I want to take the next 40 minutes or so, uh, if we can, and try to talk about what Sabbath is in the life of New Testament believers. Um, And I want to do that as best I can by starting where we ended last week. So if you were here last week, you should recognize this slide. These are the four pieces of the Sabbath puzzle that were in play in Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. And the most important one for the sake of today is the one in green. That was the fourth piece of the Sabbath puzzle. Uh, We said last week that Sabbath serves the needs of of humanity, of people like you and I, that Sabbath does not serve the needs of God. And that's a paradigm shift. If that feels new to you or you're not sure about that, you may want to go back and listen to last week's sermon. I can't reteach it today or we would never get to where we need to go. Uh, But that's available to you if you need that resource, if that would be helpful. Uh, But just, you're going to have to trust me if you're not familiar with how we reached that conclusion that according to Jesus in Mark chapter 2, verses 37 and 38, that the Sabbath is for people. It's not for God, and therefore, that means it's a gift to you and I. It's something that we are allowed to engage in, and it's something that's supposed to meet some kind of need that we have, because God isn't uh, in the business of wasting our time. I don't believe that our Father would give us a practice, he never ever has in my experience, that's meant to make us just spin our wheels in the mud and not get anything out of it. And so, uh, if that's the case, if the Sabbath serves the needs of humanity, not the needs of God, then the way that we approach Sabbath is going to be different from the way that the Pharisees approached the Sabbath. In many ways, you could almost create a list of Sabbath practice guidelines by looking at what the Pharisees did and just doing the opposite. Uh, But that's not always the best way to navigate God's word. So what I want to do is present to you three questions today that I think we can answer with clarity. And in answering these three questions, we'll be able to build a concept of Sabbath not as law, but Sabbath as mercy. Sabbath as grace, as an opportunity, as an invitation to us from God. So here are those three questions. Feel free to write these down if you're taking notes. The first question is, how does Sabbath serve our needs? This is a question that's kind of raised by the idea that Jesus says that Sabbath is for people. Well, if it's for us, how is it for us? In what ways? So we'll take our time and try to answer that question today. The second question is, how is Sabbath related to Jesus and his gospel? Because like all of the spiritual practices, we're not just trying to do a nice thing to make us feel better. Our intention is to participate in the life of Christ purchased for us by Jesus. And so our objective is to figure out what Sabbath practice has to do with grace and mercy, Jesus' life and death and resurrection, and us living into God's kingdom here on earth. And then finally, what are some practical guidelines about the Sabbath? This is where we'll finish our time this morning. I'll try to give you four, if I can, clear brief objectives, because again, this isn't a whole sermon series on Sabbath. We could probably spend five or six weeks on this, and I think eventually we will, 
But for the sake of today, I'm just trying to give you sort of an introduction, a flyby, almost a 40-minute infomercial. I know that sounds so fun and exciting. That's what you always hope for when you come to church. I hope it's a 40-minute infomercial. But I think you're going to get a little bit out of this today, and hopefully this will prime the pump for some questions and some lines of thinking uh, that will sort of bear fruit when we finally do preach through Sabbath sometime maybe this year or next year. So let's start with the first question. How does Sabbath serve our needs? Because Jesus says that it's supposed to. So if we can't answer this question, we're probably not going to approach Sabbath the right way. And by default, because whether you know it or not, you and I are just as wicked in our hearts as the Pharisees. We're just as tempted toward turning spiritual practices into a way to keep the law and impress God. We're going to get this wrong. If we don't follow the guidelines that Jesus has in mind for us, we're going to get this wrong. So in this way, the Sabbath meets our needs, serves our needs by transforming our limits into worship. That's the answer to that first question. How does it serve our needs? It transforms our limits into worship. So what do I mean when I say limits? When I'm talking about limits, I'm really talking about the things that make you different from God, the things that make you a human being. The fact that you inhabit a body and your body can only be in one place at a time and your body gets hungry and your body gets tired and your body gets irritated that your spouse won't wash the milk out of their cereal bowl in the sink and your spouse would really like your kids to go to bed or your body would, would really like your kids to go to bed on time and your body would really rather eat cake than healthy food and there's all kinds of things that your body brings to the table with you. Some of those things are good and right but because of the world that we live in they feel bad. Or we feel embarrassed about those limits. We would like to stay up later. We would like to be able to run farther. We would like to be able to get even more work done. Even though we clocked out at 4, we'd like to work all the way until 10 when we crash or our coffee finally wears off or we take enough melatonin to counteract the caffeine in our blood so we can get a few hours of sleep at night. We would like to be unlimited. In reality, our limits are not meant to be negative. They're supposed to create space for things that we would never create space for on our own. Namely, the worship of God. You and I, no matter how Christian we may think that we are, we rarely go out of our way to prioritize God's presence in our lives. Now, maybe you're in a small group, or you have a spouse, or a good friend, or you've gone through some sort of formation process at a church where that's been ingrained in you, but I would say that if that is something that's become second nature to you, that you had to learn it. It wasn't a priority out of the womb. It wasn't something that you came into the world carrying with you was this deep desire to set aside time to know God and know his word and worship with other believers. You have to learn that. And you kind of have to get it wrong for a while before you can start to get it right. And so what I want you to understand is in the ways that we are limited, if we experience those limits, our physicality, our, the fact that we can't be everywhere all the time, that we can't do everything for everyone, we typically experience those as negative if we're experiencing them without Jesus. Almost anybody that you work with, the people who are on your intramural team, the kids in your children's classes at school, they don't want to go to bed. They don't want to brush their teeth. They don't want to have to eat healthy. They don't like the things that they have to do to maintain their lifestyle because those things communicate to them that they are limited. They want to go faster. They want to go farther. They want to do more, and they don't want to ever have to stop. Without Jesus, at best, our limits are frustrating. Our limits are something that we try to outrun. They're something that we try to supplement or medicate or caffeinate our way out of. Without Jesus at worst, our limits become real liabilities because we believe that they will threaten our livelihoods. We believe that our limits will threaten our relationships. We believe that our limits will threaten our sense of self. Imagine with me, if you will, the last time that you uh, experienced moral failure. Maybe you blew up at your kids or you lost patience with your spouse or you lied to your boss or 
you entertained your lust or you envied your neighbor. The list could go on and on and on. But just think back. I bet in the last 24 hours, if you're honest with yourself, you can think of an example of a place where you would say, I was not living in God's kingdom. I was not uh, being Christ to my neighbor, my spouse, my family, etc." If you think back to that situation, you might notice that your moment of weakness had a few things in common with all of our moments of weakness, including mine. You were probably tired in that situation, physically tired. If you weren't physically tired, maybe you were worried or you were anxious or you were stressed out about something that you were carrying with you and that made you more sensitive than you normally would be. Maybe you were hungry or uh, even hangry, which is a real thing that happens to real people and they just need something to eat right now or else they're gonna just eat you. They're just gonna bite your head off and you'll be the meal if they can't find something to put in their stomach. And very likely, in that period of moral failure, whatever it was, you were probably emotionally drained or maybe you were feeling wounded. You were already feeling something that happened a long time ago. Even if the person that you blew up at wasn't the one who did the wounding, something rubbed salt in a wound that you carry with you, an emotional wound, and that led you to blow up. That led you to lose patience. That led you to give in to that lust. That led you to look at your neighbor and say, my life is terrible and their life is so much better than mine. Sabbath serves to meet every one of those needs. So I want to let that sink into your brain for a minute. Sabbath serves to provide physical rest for a body that's too tired. Sabbath carves out room so that you don't have to experience your home like a combination of a hotel and a fast food restaurant that many of, many of us just, we jump in, we drop one bag, we grab another bag full of stuff, we're headed out for three or four more hours. Sabbath pushes back on that a little bit. Sabbath exists to give you room to feel the things that you need to feel so that you can deal with the things that you need to deal with, emotional wounds, uh, being drained from lots of stress from other people in your life. Sabbath invites us to cast our physical, mental, and emotional cares on Jesus, and more than just an empty invitation, a sort of a mental idea, I don't want you to just leave today and think that the preacher said, I just need to do a better job of giving things up to God, and I already don't know how to do that, and I stink at it, so I guess I'm just going to fail again. That's not the point at all. The point is that Sabbath doesn't just motivate us or invite us to give our cares to Jesus, a thing that he says we can do again and again in his word, but it gives us the room to make that choice. Because that's not a choice you can make quickly or you would have. That's not an easy decision to make when you're stressed out, when you're pent up, when you're feeling wounded, when you're too hungry, too tired, too stressed out. It's not easy to just quickly deal with those things or we would. What's easy is to live out of those experiences and to hurt other people and to cause them stress and to cause them damage and to multiply like dominoes out the effects of the thing that it is that we're carrying. Sabbath is not just a verbal invitation from Jesus to throw a Hail Mary emotionally and hope that he'll catch it and take all your pain away. Sabbath is space to slowly work through the things that you need to work through, a way that's meaningful, a way that's personal and healing. Sabbath gives us the room that we need to bring our wounds to our Heavenly Father with the full confidence, not just that things might get better, but that the blood of Jesus has purchased us a seat at God's table. And sometimes when we sit at God's table and we look God in the eye, we need to vent a little bit, or we need to weep a little bit, or we need to laugh, or we have something to mourn with him. Oftentimes as Christians, I believe we fall into the trap where we experience something hard we retreat or we pull ourselves away from our community. We go somewhere where we can be somewhat alone, somewhat private. 
I say somewhat because some of you guys have children that are like three and two years old and there's no such thing as private in your home, but you can get a little closer, right? You can at least shut the bathroom door while you sit on the edge of the bathtub and weep or sit on the edge of the bathtub and gripe under your breath at how mad you are. Unfortunately, I think we feel, and this is the trap, like we have to clean that up. We have to fix it or handle it or try to wipe it all away before we present ourselves to God. And that if we can't just come into God's presence quoting psalms and scripture and praising his name for the horrible day we're having, that we're somehow not Christian enough. Believer, it's coming into God's presence with that baggage that puts you in a place where you can remember the truth of the scriptures. But we ought not tell ourselves that it's our job to self-improve and then bring a clean version of, of me to God as an offering. Sabbath is a rhythmic, once-a-week space for all that junk that gets caught in the clog, in the grease trap of your life, to get scraped out and emptied. And maybe that sounds like a negative thing to have to do once a week, but I can tell you that not doing it at all is a lot worse. It will have effects in your life. Probably like me, many of you can think of a man who grew up in our culture in the West who is totally disconnected and cut off from his emotions. Now, some of that is probably a mixture of father wounds. Some of it is the expectations that our culture has for him and the way that he lives. Some of it may even be his workplace. He may just not be a guy who has a lot to say. But I would argue that the difference between men especially who can unlock that part of themselves and deal with it and those who have to just keep stuffing their feelings away, stuffing their fear, stuffing their pain, stuffing their anger somewhere else, the difference is time and space and trust in God that he'll take those things from us. Sabbath is a gift given to people to deal with those kinds of things. And again, lest you think that I'm here to beat you over the head with some new auxiliary piece of Christianity that you have to bolt on to Jesus or else you're not saved, not at all. Sabbath is totally meaningless by itself. If all Sabbath is for us is a day off a week where we get mad at our family because Jesus told us that we have to have a day off, so don't ask me to unclog the toilet and don't ask me to help make your lunch and don't ask me to do the bills today, it's my Sabbath. Sabbath is not something that's designed to give us an excuse to be more selfish. In the same way, if you can think back to silence and solitude, that silence and solitude is not just an emergency break to pull when you're overwhelmed. These are practices to put into play so that you can anticipate that you're going to need them and so that you can open yourself up to be formed and shaped by God. And that's going to happen slowly over a very long period of time. But when you practice Sabbath as a day that's set apart with God, where no one and nothing can demand that you step out of God's presence, and I'm specifically talking work no one, work nobody. You can't be pulled out of God's presence for a call. You can't be pulled out of God's presence for an email. In that sense, Sabbath can be a mercy to you and I because it's meant to be much more than just a religious day, and I think some of us think that way. You may know someone who is a New Testament believer, is a New Covenant Christian, who would call themselves, they would wear a label that says Sabbatarian, and these are the kinds of people who've decided that Sunday only is the only day that can be a Sabbath and that Sunday has to be religiously kept as much like the Jewish Sabbath was as possible. So we're talking like not wearing clothes with buttons because buttoning a shirt is work and not reheating leftovers in the microwave because turning on a device that does, that's powered is work. That's not what the Bible's trying to get you to do. What the Bible wants you to do is find a day where you can share 24 hours with God and then trust that if you'll do that for long enough and stick to it, it will uniquely meet some of the needs that are presented by your limits. As we bring our limits to God, we begin to change our minds about them. They change from liabilities that get in the way of our productivity, in the way of our achievement, and in the way of our success. And truly, though this may seem totally far-fetched and like incomprehensible to you, they change from that over time into opportunities for surrender. 
sacrifices of time and attention and space and emotion, pain and joy that we make as we admit to God and ourselves the thing that every type A personality in the room hates to hear or ever have to admit that we can't do everything for everyone everywhere at once. That's the heartbeat of Sabbath, that you can't do it all. So don't try to do it all. Try to do what God's given to you. Limit and, and, and pare down the number of things that you're scrambling to try to accomplish and then spend some time with him along the way. If you will Sabbath, it will transform your limits into worship. God promised his people that keeping a Sabbath and setting it aside for him, that that would lead them into a new kind of life that they could never achieve on their own. This is from Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 and 14. God says, if you refrain from trampling on the Sabbath, I love that language, trampling on it, If you refrain from pursuing your own interests on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and a holy day, the day of Yahweh, as honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, not serving your own interests, not pursuing your own affairs, if you will do that, then you will take delight in Yahweh, and I, Yahweh, will make you ride upon the heights. You'll ride high with God. Think about that example, the way that God lays that pattern out, and then think of who the Pharisees were in Mark chapter 2. They were doing everything opposite of how God prescribes. They were going their own way. They were serving their own interests. They were pursuing their own affairs, and therefore, they were trampling on the Sabbath. And therefore, they could not comprehend Jesus' understanding of what it meant to take a day and truly give it to God. Now, maybe when you see Isaiah on the screen, you assume that this is some obscure Old Testament law that doesn't really apply to people like you and I. God actually began this particular conversation two chapters earlier in Isaiah 56. Listen to this language. This is who that command applies to. That was the command itself. Here's who it applies to. This is verse 6 of Isaiah 56. God says, the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh, to minister to him, to love the name of Yahweh, to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast to God's covenant, these he will bring to his holy mountain. He says, I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, for all peoples, so you and I as well. Thus says the Lord God who gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He says, I will gather others to them besides those whom I have already gathered. Isaiah chapters 56, 57, and 58 are a vision of the new covenant. So this is God giving an Old Testament prophet a glimpse of what's going to happen after Jesus lives, dies, and is resurrected. These are not dusty old phrases that are exclusive to Old Testament kings and prophets that you've never heard of whose names you can't pronounce. These are promises for a people formed by God through the sacrifice of Jesus. This is the way that things are going to work between God and mankind from now until the day that time ends. So Yahweh's promise in Isaiah 56 and 58 is that when we choose to Sabbath, we'll be brought into God's presence and we will have joy. That by embracing our limits, by letting it be okay, that we can't do everything for everyone all of the time, that we'll find our limits transformed into worship. That brings us to our second question, which is, how is Sabbath related to Jesus and his gospel? Probably of the three questions, the one that you are or at least should be most concerned with. Uh, Here's my answer, that Sabbath invites us into the eternal rest of Jesus. So when you think of Jesus, you probably think of him doing lots of things. You can visualize in your head that he's casting out demons at different points, and that's amazing. He did do that. It's a miracle. 
You probably have some picture in your mind of him laying hands on someone who's sick or even bringing someone back to life who was dead. And those things happen as well. As we discovered when we worked through silence and solitude and again when we worked through the discipline of prayer, there are lots of things happening in the background in Jesus' story that sometimes we don't notice quite so clearly. That he does go away to be with God alone often. That he goes away to pray and to speak his heart to God and to listen to what God would say back to him to lead and guide his actions on the earth. He does that often, even though it doesn't always jump off the page to us. Something else that's important about the character of Jesus is that he practices the Sabbath. Not only does he acknowledge it in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John when he's on the earth, but if you begin to read the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, some of the prophecies that exist about where we're all going and how all of this human stuff wraps up at the end of time, that Jesus' posture in eternity is a posture of rest. The book of Hebrews tells us that he sat down and that he remains seated uniquely. Now, you probably don't know a lot about what a high priest does in the ancient Israel world, and that's fine, but I can tell you that just like I'm standing to speak to you, the priests spent most of their time on their feet. The Bible's trying to tell you that Jesus has now fulfilled the office of priest so perfectly that there's no more work to do. And because there's no more work to do, there's no more standing to be done. And because there's no more standing to be done, now he's seated. And because he's seated and he's our king, we get to sit down too. Again, this is not an excuse for you to be lazy or to carve out space in your schedule to be more self-centered or more selfish. This is an encouragement based on the model of the life of Christ that we would do what he has done for us so that we can do it with him, that we can participate in his rest. We'll get to Hebrews in a minute. I want to throw back to Genesis 2 for just a second. We read these verses last week, so this is just a reminder to you that Sabbath revolves around two things, work and rest, and that the initial pattern of Sabbath comes from the opening pages of the Bible. Here's what the Bible tells us about God in Genesis chapter 2. The heavens and the earth were completed with everything that was in them. The work was done. By the seventh day, God finished the work that he had been doing, and he ceased on the seventh day all of the work that he had been doing. God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on that day he ceased all work that he had been doing in creation. Now, you may read those verses and be tempted to believe that God's big finish in his great creation masterpiece was humanity. You may have even heard it preached that way. Certainly, humanity is the pinnacle of the created order, but the way the story is told is actually meant for us to to be on the edge of our seat at the end of day six. God just made people. What will he make next? What will he do next? Where will he go next? If you're following the story chronologically, you have no real reason to think that God is going to finish at the end of the seventh day. Maybe God will create for a month. Maybe God will create for millennia. Who knows? And so as we fall into day seven, as we follow the plan as written in God's word, that God has followed himself, that he's made all things, he's made them in a certain order, we get to day seven, and you're probably so familiar with this that you don't have this experience, but I think if you're reading this for the first time, it's almost a letdown. God makes humanity... And then he takes a day off? Why would God need to take a day off? I think is a very logical question for us to ask. John Stott, who is the author of a great book called The Cross of Christ that you should add to your reading list if you've never read it, he says this. He says, The climax of Genesis 1 is not the creation of human beings as workers, but it is the institution of the Sabbath for human beings as worshipers. That's the top of creation. The end point in our toil, which is in Genesis 2, subduing the earth, but your toil probably looks more like sending emails and telling people what their job is for the day or problem solving or doing the dishes or whatever. The end goal of that, the end point is not the toil itself, but it's the laying aside of the toil on the Sabbath day. For the Sabbath puts the importance of work in perspective. It protects us. 
Why do we need protection? Because we're limited. It protects us from a total absorption in our work as if it were to be the be-all and end-all of our existence. It is not. Ouch. If you're like me, a challenger, aggressive, lean toward workaholic when you're not careful and there's not boundaries in place, this is a little bit defeating. It's almost deflating to my ego to go, are you serious? All the work that I do all the time is not the point. It feels like the point. I schedule my life like it's the point. I have meetings like it's the point. I answer emails like it's the point. I'm on my phone all day like it's the point. John Stott seems to think that from God's perspective, it isn't. And that alone may be all the paradigm shift that some of our brains can grapple with today. That may be as far as we get in this message. But if you can come past that point and understand the larger point that John Stott is making, Sabbath has rest as its primary theme. Creation has rest as its primary theme. What does this mean for you and I? It means that Sabbath rest is both passive and active. It's passive in the sense that we stop our work and we refuse to engage with it, even mentally, and we do that for 24 hours. Sabbath is active in the sense that we choose to engage in activities and trains of thought that lead us into rest. So passive Sabbath is just saying no to work, but that's not the whole picture by itself. Active Sabbath is then taking that space that we've cleared out by saying no to work and backfilling it with things that actually lead us into rest. This is part of God's plan for the life of every human being. Now, from the perspective of the New Testament, Jesus' overall mission on earth was to restore humanity to the kind of rest that comes from being clothed in Christ's righteousness. Jesus himself said this in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. He said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you a Sunday school class to teach. No, he didn't. No, he didn't say that. And he didn't say you're going to serve until you're blue in the face and you're going to start dreading Sundays because all you do is work and work and work and work and work for the church. He said, if you come to me and you're already weary, which you are, you don't have to admit that. We all know it's true because we live in the same world we, you do. You're heavy laden, you're heavy burdened with responsibilities and relationships and the future and money. If you, that kind of person, come to Jesus, the only thing he has on the to-do list to give back to you is rest. Rest with him. Rest in his presence, rest in his mercy, rest under his blood shed for you that redeems you and saves you and takes all those things you're scared of and nullifies them. Takes that future that you're afraid will happen if you don't work hard enough and says, I've got a future for you, you're gonna be fine. Takes those kids that you're worried, if I don't beat enough Bible into their brain, how will they ever become Christians? And Jesus says, I got it, I got it, I got it, we're good. Doesn't mean you never work, it means once in a while you never work. And that once in a while you choose not to and then you backfill with rest. And we'll get there in a minute. I don't want to get overly practical. In Mark 6, Jesus said to his disciples, come away with me to a lonely place and there we will rest a while together. This means that Jesus doesn't just prioritize spiritual rest for his apprentices, but even physical rest is a priority in his kingdom. That he wants them to understand that part of ministry training under his instruction includes a day away from the ministry once in a while. This means, especially in our day and age, here in the West, that resting on purpose is a uniquely Christian discipline. There is almost nobody else in your life who would even be able to comprehend choosing to take 24 hours and not fill it up with your hobbies, not be out on the lake or out on your snow machine or doing all the stuff that you think that's just fun. I'm not saying Sabbath has no room for fun, but setting aside the whole day entirely to be oriented toward God. No one's going to teach you this but Jesus. So don't be surprised if it feels a little bit countercultural. Now, big picture, zooming out, Sabbath rest remains for followers of Jesus like you and I. Obviously, we were not standing there in Matthew chapter 11 or Mark chapter 6 when Jesus said these things literally, physically to the disciples who were with him there. 
But the law of the Sabbath was fulfilled by Jesus, and therefore, it's no longer a law to us, it's an invitation. The principle of rest remains for Christians in the New Testament. In the book of Hebrews chapter 4, the author of Hebrews says this to the Jewish churches throughout the diaspora. He says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whomever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And the rest that God offers you and I, it's not only something that Jesus bought for us with his blood, it's also something he eternally participates in himself. So hear this, this is from the opening verses of the same letter, Hebrews chapter 1. After God spoke long ago in various portions and in various ways to our ancestors through the prophets, this is Old Testament, in these last days, God has spoken to us in a son. A son who does what? Whom has been appointed heir of all things. A son through whom God created the world. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the representation of God's essence. He sustains all things by his powerful word. And so, if all of those things are true, when Jesus had accomplished cleansing for sins, he sat down. That's the climax. That's the thing that you and I take for granted that nobody in the ancient Near Eastern world had ever even heard about, that there would be a God that would take a break because the work was done, because the power and the ultimate sacrifice that he put on the line for all of us was so complete and so perfect that there wasn't any more work to do. This isn't the way that the gods work. Pick your pantheon. Every god is anxiously in heaven in any other religious system, waiting for you to do right, trying to fix enough stuff for you to do so that you can, you can fix the world, wanting you to proselytize, pushing you hard to share and share and share and change other people and make the difference and be clean enough and good enough that maybe this time you'll go to heaven when you die or you'll be reincarnated as another person and then you'll try again. It's all a system of trying and yet here is Jesus saying to you, the work is done, it's done for you and I'm gonna sit. You, y'all can stand, I'm gonna sit. The author of Hebrews wants us to understand that Jesus now sits at the right hand of God, but that he is seated, that there is rest for him and for us. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the creator God himself. He's the heir to the kingdom of God. He's the radiance of God. He's the representation of God's essence. Jesus sustains all things. He finished his work, and now he rests. He is resting now. And if he is resting and he is the essence of God, which is what the book of Hebrews just told us is the truth, then God is at rest in eternity. This is the rest that the Father and the Son are calling you into out of your busyness, out of your law-keeping, out of your legalism, out of your achievement, out of your success, out of your fear and your pain and your wounds. This is what Jesus is offering to you. This is the rest that we get to taste and see in the way that we practice the Sabbath because Sabbath invites us into the eternal rest of Jesus. Now, again, another caveat for you, lest you misunderstand that all I'm trying to do is make you better or cleaner or whatever else you're afraid is happening here. Sabbath, like all of the practices, it's just a vehicle. It's just a vessel. It's a vessel for grace and mercy. It's an arrow that points to the finished work of Jesus. But it's also an heirloom of the church that you get to inherit from all the saints who've gone before. It's a mirror that will reveal to you parts of your true self, similar to silence and solitude, that the pace at which you normally move probably keeps you from ever noticing. You're probably going so fast that you don't really know the way that you look and sound and how you come across and the stuff that's still kind of haunting you from your past that you've never dealt with. It's also a shadow. It's a shadow of life and eternity with Jesus. And it's a mercy that comforts our overworked and hurried spirits. Remember the Pharisees last week? What was their big sin? What was their big issue with the Sabbath? 
was the fact that they had turned it into a work, that they were trying so hard to rest the right way that it became a metric for whether or not they were righteous enough. That was Jesus' issue with them. We ought to be careful as we try things like Sabbath that we also not turn it into a new metric, a new way to win at Christianity. This is not God's will for us. God's will is that we relax and rest and fall back into God's presence and that for 24 hours we allow him to be God because we are not. Okay, final question. What guidelines about the Sabbath are there for us? What can we draw from Scripture? And I'll give you four today, and this is where we'll land the plane this morning. We stop, we rest, we delight, and we contemplate. I'm going to talk to you about each of those. If you're taking notes, you'll want to write those down. We're going to take them one at a time. The first guideline for Sabbath is that we have to stop. The Psalms are a great example to us. Uh, The Psalms are full of stopping language. The Psalms say things like, Oh God, I will stop to rest, or I will stop to sleep, or I will be still, or I will be quiet with God, that I will reject anxious busyness, that I will wait patiently for Yahweh, that I will wait for God in silence, that I will trust him, that I will choose not to act on fear, that I would even at times take shelter or refuge in God and wait for him to protect me from whatever it is that feels like it's bombarding me or assaulting me from outside of myself. Jesus echoes the language of the Psalms when he teaches in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, his most famous sermon, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches about anxiety and relationships, money and envy, productivity and fear, pain and controversy. And each of those issues, if we are not careful, can become our mindset and can become our way of life if we don't stop and rest in Jesus. The point is, to practice Sabbath, we have to stop most of the things that we spend our time doing. Not all of them, but most of them. And again, this is a principle for you. This is a guideline, not a rule, okay? For some of us, things like laundry and dishes, cooking and cleaning, these are our work six days a week. And so when we Sabbath, we need to resist doing any of those things. We may even need to prepare the day before. There's a reason in the Jewish tradition of Shabbat, which is where we get Sabbath from, that the day before was considered a day of preparation, where you got all your chores done and you ran all your errands and you pulled back from life enough that when the sun went down that evening, you could come into God's presence and focus on him for 24 hours. For others of us, work may look like multitasking. Work may look like decision-making, or it may look like uh, keeping everybody else happy and afloat, or problem-solving, or troubleshooting. Sabbath, for those of us who work outside the home, might include chores in the home, but we might do them in a slower way. We might do them in a way that's reflective and worshipful and really thankful for the person who does them the other six days a week and worshiping God that it's not our responsibility to build our career and care for the home alone. Here's an idea for you that maybe will drive this point home. You and I are going to die. So, newsflash, I think you knew that. But when you die, there are going to be goals that you had that will be incomplete. You will not accomplish every goal that you have. Nobody in this room will be able to say on their deathbed, I did it. No, you'll have to make peace with something being undone. You will pass down some debt, some objective, some idea to the next in line at your company or to your children or to somebody who's followed you and apprenticed underneath you. You won't get all the work done. If you can make peace with that, you can hang on to that truth and let that become a part of your mindset, then you will find that you'll be able to let God be in control one day a week. He's going to be in control when you're gone anyway. Why not trust him now? Why not give him one day a week now while you're still alive? That may be a helpful principle. Second guideline is rest. So I'll give you an example from my life on how rest works, okay? Uh, For me, work relates to my vocation here as one of the pastors at True North Church, and it includes a lot of writing, a fair amount of teaching, Uh, some counseling of church members, and so for that reason, 
Sabbath can never be a Sunday for me. This is why I can never be a Sabbatarian, that example that I gave you earlier. I'm not so religiously attached to Sunday as the Sabbath because it's my biggest work day. It's the day I get up the earliest, usually. It's the day I do the most work in the name of the church. It's the day that I do the most communication behind the scenes about different things and meet with people and pray with them. And I'm not upset to do any of those things. Don't misunderstand me. But I'm not going to lie to God and myself and act like the three hours I have at the end of the day before bedtime is a sufficient time of rest and focus and worship with God. In fact, coming out of Sunday is my busiest kind of, I'm coming up the hill for the rest of the work week. I'm getting ready to send emails and follow up with people and set up meetings and push different ministries forward and work on announcements and all that stuff begins to kind of overwhelm me. So it's unwise for me to try to put the weight of Sabbath in a day that can't, it can't hold that weight. So for me, Thursday is typically my Sabbath. My work week sort of builds until Wednesday afternoon, evening, and then I try to cut things off when I'm done with work on Wednesday, and I go into the Sabbath, and I typically Sabbath for 24 hours. So if it starts on Wednesday at 5, then I'm done a little bit earlier. If I don't get unplugged until 10 or 11 p.m. on Wednesday night, then I may go that long on Thursday just to try to get as close to 24 hours as I can. I usually start my Sabbath, I like to, by getting up early and exercising on Thursday, I'm not like a big workout buff, but it kind of helps set the pace of my day to expand those 24 hours as long as they can go. So I really feel like I'm getting every minute of each of them. And then I spend the rest of my day mostly alone with God. I almost always take a nap. It's usually at least three hours at some point in the middle of my Sabbath. Uh, I like to take walks when the weather allows. I like to read. I spend some time in prayer, practicing different disciplines. Um, I almost always listen to at least one sermon, sometimes more. Um, I read novels, I watch movies, I love to play video games. That's been one of my hobbies since I was a kid. I usually do some of that on my Sabbath here and there. Again, I'm not giving the whole day over to entertainment, but I'm finding spaces where I can fill my mind and heart with some truth that I want to contemplate and then putting myself in a position to actually contemplate, which, believe it or not, firing up a video game is a pretty brainless activity for me. So I can let those thoughts bang around in my brain, and a lot of times I'll have some insight or it'll kind of slowly work its way down from my head into my heart and I'll begin to take on those qualities. Now that's a sometimes thing. Some weeks my Sabbath looks totally different from that. Uh, This past Wednesday, I got home from work at about 4.15. I slapped together some pasta for dinner, the easiest dinner in human history. Uh, Made sure and told Andy it's made so everybody can have it, they can heat it up whenever they're hungry. I usually don't make dinner, but I'd offer to do it that night, so I just put something together. And then I fell asleep on the couch almost right away. I was so tired. Uh, I slept on the couch for about an hour and a half, When I got up, I could tell that I probably wasn't in good shape. And so I went and found Andy, and I said, I think I need to go to bed. And she was like, okay, when? And I was like, right now. And she was like, okay. And so, you know, in order to not totally disrupt the family, I went to sleep in the guest bedroom at our house where I could shut the door and just make it dark and go right to sleep. And I did. I went to bed around 6.30. I woke up at 9. I had another short meal. I was back asleep by 10. Uh, I slept in that morning until about 10.30. And then I had another two-hour nap on the couch that afternoon. So sometimes on your Sabbath, you're not going to get a whole lot further than rest. And that's okay. Because like me, you probably live at a deficit most of the time. And I don't think that that's what God had in mind when he created human beings. That we would find a way to corner the market on stimulants so that we would barely ever sleep and fill our lives to the gills with stuff. So sometimes that's what you need. The most worshipful thing you can do on a Sabbath sometimes is to let go and just trust God with the day. And acknowledge to him that he's going to have to take care of your family. He's going to have to take care of your responsibilities. He's going to have to calm people down when they're trying to get a hold of you and they can't. But he's God. And he's going to have to do all of that when you're gone. So why not give him that day once a week and give him room to be God because you are not. The third guideline is delight. Delight means that when we Sabbath, we plan to enjoy God. And we plan to enjoy his creation. 
Many of you uh, come from maybe a Presbyterian background, and so you probably have heard of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The first question in that catechism, the most famous question in the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? Anybody know the answer? That's part one, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's right. And if you're a John Piper Baptist, you would say to glorify God by enjoying him forever. I know I've read the book. Either way, that's the answer, okay? Here's what I want you to understand. The Westminster Catechism, one of the most foundational catechisms in modern Western thought when it comes to Christianity and how to raise children, etc., it believed that that was the best place to start. The most important thing you could teach a child or a new believer was that the primary reason you exist is to glorify God and enjoy him. So look in the mirror, Christian. Are you enjoying him? Ever? Do you enjoy anything about Christianity? For many of us, maybe like me, church is work for you. And this isn't the most fun place that you have to go every week. Now, I love worshiping with you guys, and I, I love the privilege of preaching. Don't misunderstand me. But when I get here, I have a lot to do. And maybe you feel the same way. Do you have room in your life to actually do the thing that these guys, who are smarter than you and me, seem to think was foundational in the Christian life? Sure, you can glorify God. Maybe you feel like that's more important. Maybe you just sacrifice your life on the altar of ministry every day, and you never rest, and you never stop, and you never recover. That's only half of the thing. What kind of Christianity will you be able to show a person who has questions? How could anybody ever want to come into faith in Christ if all they see is a bunch of people beating themselves to death in Jesus' name to do more and go faster and do more and go faster? Enjoying God is part of this thing. You don't have to wait until you get to heaven to like God, to know him, to spend time with him, to enjoy him. Sabbath gives you permission to enjoy God, to delight in him, and to delight in what he has given to you without interruption and without distraction. God's perspective on creation, we know this from Genesis chapter 1, is that when creation is without sin, it is very good. He said so many, many times. God delights over his creation, and he has not abandoned it, even though it is now broken by sin. Part of how you and I counterculturally reconcile the world to Jesus is by truly enjoying what God has given us and by engaging with creation as an act of worship. This is a quote that I found helpful from Peter Scazzaro on delighting in small gifts in the Sabbath. He says, On Sabbaths we are called to enjoy and delight in creation and its gifts. We are to slow down and pay attention to our food, smelling and tasting its riches. We are to take the beauty of a tree, a leaf, a flower, a sky that has been created with great care by our God. He has given us the ability to see, to hear, to taste, to smell, and to touch, that we might feast with our senses on the miraculousness of life. The final guideline is to contemplate. Exodus chapter 31 tells us that the Sabbath is always holy to the Lord, that the bottom line foundational piece, the reason I'm telling you this last is because I'm hoping it will stick in your memory more than the other three did, but that if Sabbath is not first a day for God and for you to know God and honor God and worship God, then it is just a day off. It's just another way to relabel what our culture would call self-care and to justify doing things that you wish you had more time to do that are fun or that make you feel better. That's not the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day set aside for God. We believe as Christians that when we spend time with him, he will fill our lives with joy. But if we don't consider the love of God, if we don't consider the finished work of Jesus on that Sabbath as our primary focus, then we're missing the point. Now, for most people in this local church, Sabbath is still ideally practiced on Sunday because you're already planning to worship here, you're already planning to meet with other believers, you're going to hear God's word taught, and you're going to be given opportunities to focus on God and to focus on his work for you. 
Our short lives on earth are put into perspective if we Sabbath, as we look ahead in time to the day when we will see God's kingdom in all of its fullness and enter into the eternal Sabbath with God our Father, with Jesus his Son, and with the Holy Spirit of God. That's what we have before us, and that's what it would mean to contemplate. So I believe we will in eternity taste the full splendor and the greatness, the beauty and the excellence, and the glory of Jesus. But we don't have to wait to taste it. We can begin to participate in that now. We don't have to. Again, this isn't an extra bolted-on thing to Jesus, but you've been given permission by God, a permission that maybe you don't know if you have in your home, in your life, in this culture, to slow down, to pull the emergency brake and find a way to carve out time to be with God alone. There's a lot more that I could say about Sabbath as a practice, and like I told you before, I hope that we'll reach the point where we can preach this a little slower and go a little bit deeper together on this topic. Uh, But for now, you can consider today's teaching an introduction and one that I hope will help you. So I'd like to pray for you, and then we're going to continue to worship Jesus in song. Thanks so much for your time and attention this morning. Father, we love you, and uh, we're here in, in your name. We're here in the name of Jesus, believing God that we've been saved from the absolute worst things about ourselves. Um, I hope that today's an encouragement. I hope, God, not to have spoken condemnation or a sense of failure to people who are not practicing Sabbath, God, but to have clearly uh, swung wide the doors of the kingdom and, and made an invitation. That's my goal. So, God, if I didn't do that, would you fix it, please? Would you remind us that rest is not a symptom of weakness, that hunger is not a symptom of weakness, even feeling weak on its own? is not a symptom of real character weakness, God, but ignoring those things, medicating those things, trying to shove them down in a way instead of facing them and dealing with them, that those are signs of weakness. May we find strength in you by the power of your spirit, God. Would you give us boldness? Would you give us courage to to jump into a world where we believe we can be away from work and tasks and achievement once in a while? And may we do that not in the name of ourselves, selfishly trying as best we can to feel better, God, but may we do it in your name as an act of worship that comes from a heart of love, that loves you and wants to be with you. God, remind us that we have permission to make that time and take it with you. We love you, Father. We trust you with our lives. Teach us as you have to work in your name, also to rest. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.